we say things like, maybe later, perhaps another time, or I'll see you tomorrow. But for some of us, there won't be a tomorrow. Listen as your worst nightmares come to life. These nightmares have become someone's reality. My name is Justin Crowley, and this is The Murder Project. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Episode 6 of The Murder Project. This is the debrief on the murder of Sister Tadea Benz and the arrest, conviction, and execution of Johnny Frank Garrett. Now, for those of you that are new to the podcast, the debrief is an episode where I sit down with my good friend and former police officer, Mike Smith. In the debrief, we discuss the case from both sides of the aisle, theories that we might have, and anything that we think needs a second look. The debrief will be an unscripted, off-the-cuff commentary about cases that we're currently involving, and it'll act as sort of a bonus episode so we still get our weekly podcast fix. Our hope in doing the debrief is that we break the cases down further, but in a relaxed environment with the true crime we love and some laughter. So let's get the episode started. How's it going, Mike? Oh, it's going good. Good deal. I love the debriefs because, one, I'm in them, and and two, we get to take a second look because there was just so many times in this case there should have been second looks, maybe even a third or fourth look, because there are some obvious issues with this investigation. 100%. And uh, it also gives us a chance to get to catch up and hang out with each other. So I really... Uh, we're entirely too busy to also have to be doing all this, but we do it. Yeah. And uh, just to give you guys a refresher on the last case, uh, we're talking about the murder of Sister Tadea Benz. Uh, which has turned out to be a tongue-tie situation for me in a lot of cases where I messed that up. And the arrest, conviction, and execution of Johnny Frank Garrett. Uh, originally, there was a an October 31st, to, uh, 1981, Halloween night. A nun was murdered in the convent. Police searched around, got clues, were, were doing their investigation. It looks as though the investigation could have gone a multiple different ways, but for some reason, uh, Garrett was kind of fingered as the guy that they focused in on and charged with the crime. Oh, like tunnel vision laser focus on this, this poor guy. Yeah. There's a lot of conflicting evidence that, that, uh, is in this case. There's multiple suspects that could have been brought up, but weren't. Garrett was later executed for his, uh, for the crime. And it it appears that there could have been a little bit of misjustice in this case. And so I also want to point out if you guys listened to the last episode, I hope you do. I hope you listen to both of them. But, uh, I made it through five episodes without really any technical error. And in episode five, there was a glitch in the matrix, something with my hard drive. I, I don't, I'm not exactly sure what happened, but, uh, after I recorded the episode and edited it, uh, I added music to it, did all the stuff. It sounded great. And for some reason in the export process, and I'm not sure what happened, but I lost about four minutes of content somewhere and it was almost perfectly at start stop points. So it doesn't seem like it was too choppy or too, you know, like it was, you know, I mean, I don't know. I like, like we were talking about a second ago, if we had, we we're already on limited time. If I had to go back and redo the whole thing again, I would have just, we'd have, 
been set back a, a week. Oh yeah, definitely. So I went I went ahead and let it fly, but when we're talking about different points in the uh, in the case, if need be, I will go back when we're talking about that and reference that. You know, this might have been a part that was cut out because, like I said, I lost four whole minutes, and in and forty minutes of a podcast, four minutes, there was some stuff in there that we that we yeah, we already spoke about one thing that that I didn't even hear. Uh, when you did it. So just the copy that I heard of the podcast, there was already stuff missing. Yeah. And so, but good thing is I thought to myself, uh, we do a debrief episode. Mm-hmm. So all of those things can come back out. It's only intended to give you the, uh, the facts of the case. So that's okay. We can keep rolling. I'd like to start, I think, or I'm not sure where you'd like to pick it up. You want to just start at the beginning? Cause I kind of did it as an, uh, the episode as if you were in, the general public, or if you're on the jury, mm-hmm. th- this is how you would have heard the case unfold. And then we had another side to it. Um, uh, well, you just one of the two minutes that one approximately two minutes that I lost, maybe even three minutes, was in that initial section. That's right. So there were there's 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 a few things that were left out. So if we if we start at the beginning, we have of course the the police get called because. Sister Benz did not show up to the 6.30 a.m. mass. One of the uh, one of the other nuns in the convent went over and checked on her. She was beaten, strangled, raped, and then mutilated. Mm-hmm. One of the things that I that, uh, didn't get into a whole lot in the other podcast was apparently it was pretty gruesome. When I, when I say mutilated, somebody used a knife or, or something similar to that. And there was a lot of blood splatter. There was a lot. It was a violent crime. Mm. Very Terrible. violent crime. And that is, uh, that will be key whenever we start talking about the evidence mm-hmm. or lack of evidence because right. I want you guys to envision that actual thing. You walk into a room, there's someone on the floor and there has been something very violent that went on in there. So we get to the point where the police are called. They get into the investigation. They start looking around at different, uh, d- uh, different things. They're talking to beat cops. They're talking to people, you yeah. know, in the neighborhood. Uh, I looked this up on Google Maps because the church is still there. Everything is still there to this day. And we're talking 40 years later. Garrett's house where he lived at the time is it's the, the convent's a large property. Yeah. But where the, where the men's area is of the convent, there's like a men's area and some other stuff. And then there's almost like two chapel areas. And then another convent, the women's is down on the other end of mm-hmm. the property. They're separated. Where the men's is literally right across the street from, if you're standing in Garrett's yard at the time, you could lob a baseball over and hit the, I mean, it's right across the street. Yeah, he was right next door. Yeah. So they, originally, I want to go back, like I said, I split it up in the original case because I wanted you to hear the two different dynamics of how that that thing rolled out, but we're going to kind of do it all inclusive in this. So after the murder of Sister Ben's, the police and the DA's office were linking this case and the case of Nani Box Bryson together because they were so similar. They were looking at the evidence of both cases. Nani Box, uh, Nani Box Bryson was 75, I believe, mm-hmm. and Sister Benz was 76. Yep. You know, both elderly women, both uh, associated with religious groups. They were both raped, uh, beaten, strangled. And mutilated. Mm-hmm. Um, was it with a knife both times? Yeah. 
Okay. So both were killed with knives. Both dwellings were entered through a cut screen and then through a window. And then, a, and so this is a broken window. Yeah. So he had to cut the screen and break the window. So, it's just, yeah. It's, and nobody heard that. Nobody heard I that. I mean, I realize it's probably a big building and the rooms are a little spread out. But still, I think that's, I still find that strange. Yeah. And then Nani, uh, Narni Box Bryson lived by herself. Mm-hmm. And it, she actually had a, a residence, but. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, so she lived by herself. So it's easy to see that that, that maybe nobody heard that. Uh, so we have both elderly, both associated with the religious groups. Both happened in the early morning. As mentioned, both uh, beaten, strangled, raped, mutilated. Uh, in the exact manner is, is how the, how law enforcement or the DA's office was, was referencing it. In the exact manner. I mean, that's a pretty good tie, like, way to tie the two scenes together. Yep. So, I mean, that, that's a, that's actually a good thing for what's about to happen in the future. Yeah. We had the cut screens. We had black curly, uh, hair found at the murder scenes, both around the victim's body and in the mouth of both the victims. We had the white shirt that was left by the bed at uh, a bedside of both victims. And in the in police reports for both murders, there were witnesses, one a neighbor for, for Bryson's murder, mm-hmm. the other one a security guard for Sister Benz's murder that saw a dark man, possibly Cuban, just before both the murders. These I mean, were in the reports for both the murders. Two separate incidents, two separate witnesses, same, same, like... Same description. Yeah. For both of them. Oh, jeez. So, so, real quick, uh, the white shirt, mm-hmm. uh, is it, are we, is this just like a, a white t-shirt? Yep. Um, okay. And what, was it just covered in blood? Yes. Was there any other fluids on it that we know about? So, both of the shirts contained, in which they found out later... Contained a DNA profile. Okay. Uh, unfortunately, I do know uh, what DNA profile the one at the Bryson murder connected to. Mm-hmm. We don't in the Sister Ben's murder because right. it was never it's tested. Very sp- yeah, and we'll cover that yeah. here in a bit we'll get, because yeah. it's it's like going to blow your mind that it's, it's so obvious, but whoa. Yeah. Um, and then I'll reference back to also to those white t-shirts that, and, and, and I'll, I'll give you my, my take on where they came from. Gotcha. Right on. Um, so in the summer of 1980, I, I talked about this, and this is how this goes in. The Fidel Castro president, Jimmy Carter. That's right. View, so Amarillo has a large refugee population. It has for a long time. Mm-hmm, yeah. And we, I was actually surprised to find how far it went back. Yeah. It's been going I, on a long time. Me too. Yeah. And so we, we get to, uh, we, ha- we have this influx of at this exact moment. Uh, not picking on anybody, but at this time, based on the situation that happened, we had an influx of Cuban refugees mm-hmm. into the United States. A lot of them ended up in Amarillo. Uh, so going off of this theory, police rounded up all of the Cuban males ha- that had migrated to this area. And they were trying to figure out alibis, you know, get hair and blood samples, anything that they might be able to use later, fingerprints, all this stuff. They went back and looked at police reports, and this is when I said there were two men that had been caught peeping into windows of elderly women uh, at the time and before the murders occurred. So you have Fernando Flores and Leoncio, uh, Leoncio Perez Rueda, which I'll talk about Leoncio 
Rueda later because mm-hmm. that was also a piece of my recording that got cut. And that was, it's very uh, unfortunate because that he, play, is. he plays a big role in this. Um, and so definitely listen to all of these. Yes. <laughs> and so for some reason, and it doesn't really talk about why the police focused in on Flores. And when they had all of his DNA and the hairs and, and all of this tested at the FBI lab, they came back and said, not the guy. Got the wrong guy. I don't know if Leoncio Perez Rueda had already left the area or how exactly there was no more attention put on him because they, they talk openly about having these two suspects. Right. They went after one. It was not a match. So I'm kind of wondering, did he already leave this area when all of this stuff went down? And then when they rounded everybody up, they had this. They had this report that showed that Leoncio had been arrested for trespassing for peeping in elderly women's windows, mm. but maybe they weren't able to find him. I'm just trying to figure out, like, I'm trying to put the pieces together where, where we, any representative in the law enforcement says, okay, let's not even test. Because I would think, why not send both? Uh, exactly. That is we got a these question. two suspects, and that's not uncommon. We got these two suspects. We're not exactly sure. Which one it is because they look very similar. Mm-hmm. Uh, they had, you know, uh, similar ethnically. And we would like to get a further profile done and see if these, you know. Right. Yeah. Get some type of connection. Now, for some reason, that was not done. No. And, and, and their attention was quickly diverted to another person. Yeah. And that, and that, I was trying to figure out because. I don't want anyone to think that, I mean, Mike and I live in this community that we're trying to crap on the police, police department here. Or DA's. I mean, this was 40 years ago. Yeah. I mean, you personally used to work for this Maybe, same department. Yeah. yeah. And I'd like to get your take on that uh, here in a little bit, but, uh, we're definitely, uh, you could say uh, pro police hundred mm-hmm. percent. Uh, I do not believe in, blind allegiance obviously oh, absolutely not no but i don't want anybody to think that that's 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 where we're going i just want everyone to understand that issues like this happen or, or used to happen have been happening in a lot of different places and this kind of opens up the, yeah i'd have a problem with this happening anywhere yeah and any- i tell i'll tell them to their face and not feel bad about it you made a mistake yeah mistakes are going to get made and it's it's painfully obvious and it's are, it's the people's responsibility to be heard having problems with stuff like that. Otherwise, how do you affect change? Yeah. And so we're, this is, we're just kind of opening up the uh, discussion on this. And, they, and like I said, it's 40 years old. So um, a lot of the things I was not able to get, I contacted a few people actually that were still alive that were involved with this case. And I didn't hear back from anybody because I wanted another side of it. Mm-hmm. You know, the, that, the last word documentary that, that was uh, done about this case is definitely one-sided. Of it course. shows you one side of how they want this this case to be looked at. Mm-hmm. I wanted honestly to get someone else's opinion on it uh, from the other side so that we could, you know, find a place in the middle, but unfortunately that didn't happen. You got to pump them numbers and get a little You got to <laughs> pump the numbers up. <laughs> get you can't have more, no rookie numbers. Yeah, get a little bit more noticed. Mm-hmm. Uh so I found it interesting that when, you know, if you, if you are a, a true crime addict of some sort, you love these cases. It's common in some of the older cases where you hear about people using psychics. Oddly enough. I've I mean, heard, I've heard several where I was like, uh, do what? If they got nothing else to go on, 
I mean, you always got the wing and a prayer strategy. Gotta keep that door open. You do. You don't know. And historically, there's times where it does work. And there's times where it doesn't. But when you're speaking in prophetic vagaries like psychics tend to do, (laughs) you're just casting a wide net. And the off chance somebody makes a connection, you're like, that's all me, baby. Yeah. I I did that. Yeah, I listened to one. I think it was over in Australia. And they brought in this median of some sort. Mm -hmm. I mean, they had them digging up like basements in old buildings and doing all this stuff. And I mean, it went on for years. And then they were like... Well, maybe I don't know. Yeah. Sorry so, about that. Sorry about that. Yeah. I don't thanks know how that, much money we spent here, but. Thanks for that blank check on my time, though. I'm going to head home. Yeah. 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 Really unfortunate. So, okay. So, we got the psychic, and the, I think the connection that, that they were trying to make in the documentary was that Bubbles, which is just perfect. Mm-hmm. Uh, Bubbles and her boyfriend, Heavy Duty, mm-hmm. which is also perfect, uh, they... Heavy Duty was a drug dealer in Amarillo. No, not with that name. And not, I know. Apparently a very bad one. He, uh, uh, From what I understand, he got arrested a lot uh, dealing drugs or trying to bring drugs into Amarillo. Just a man trying to make money. Yeah, so he was on the police radar a lot, but he also was known as someone that worked with the police a lot. Then you have this connection with Bubbles his girlfriend who calls the detectives and says, Hey, I had this dream, this vision about this, you know, younger guy, maybe five foot 11 has kind of bigger ears, kind of muscular build. And I've got this name, Mr. Clyde. And then the, you know, and, and I also like in this vision, I saw the address 4,000 Northeast 18th street. Mm -hmm. And then the police go over there and look and they're like, okay, there's a kid that, that live here, that lives here. And there's other police officers that said, Hey, there is a kid that lives here that matches that description because he's gotten a little bit of trouble, a little bit of a trouble kid. Mm-hmm. And it's, I, I should also point out that uh, Garrett had a very low IQ and was considered at the time mentally handicapped. Mm-hmm. So they go over there and look and he lives on a corner lot and they look in the street and they're like, Oh my goodness. There's Mr. Clyde right there. It was a dog has literally painted on a dog house, mm-hmm. chain link fence. At a corner lot where you could just see it from the street. What a bizarre coincidence. Yeah. Yeah. So, so they, they're like, Phew, man, it's getting hot in here. Yeah, we got to go talk to this kid yeah. because now we got a good thing coming. And it was said that after they, the Garrett Lee came up, that they were able to process the evidence that produced the fingerprints on the back of the headboard and then on the butter knife that was found underneath the, the bed of Sister Ben's. Now, I don't know if that evidence came before or after this psychic intervention, and that's how they tried to bridge the gap between the two. Hmm, I don't or, know either. Because if, in, in my opinion, if you have the fingerprints, and, and Garrett's fingerprints were on file. Yeah, but they, they had a reason for a, why that could be yeah, why, possible. Yeah, why do you bring that in? Why, why do you bring in the psychic dynamic of this if, in actuality, you don't have to? Because nothing changes the fact that you have Garrett's prints in the nun's right. room and his prints are on file. That's enough to me to look at him as a suspect. It is. Reasonably yeah. as a suspect. You don't have to show like, well, we got here because we got this awesome lead from this psychic whose boyfriend's No, a not drug with a dealer. murder. You're like, yeah. whose fingerprints are in here? We're talking to everybody. Yeah. I don't understand that, that, that point of the, 
of the case because you could have got there without it. Mm-hmm. And so they get, they, they go over to talk to Garrett. He's not home. And at this point, we're eight, eight days out ish, yeah. somewhere around there from the murder. We've already talked about the, uh, the Cuban suspects and somehow they wind up with, well, we've got his fingerprint on the back of the headboard. We've got his fingerprint on a butter knife. On a knife? Yeah. On a knife. What do you mean? It's a butter knife. It's, there's no way you're carving someone to bits. With a butter knife. With a butter. And if you are, I mean, that's, that tells you a lot about the person who did this. If that, is that something that did happen? Yeah. But as we'll come to find out, it doesn't really look that way. No, not at all. They go over, after they go over to talk to Garrett, he's not home. They get all this other evidence. They just, they decide we gotta, we gotta act. We got, we have to get over there now and get Garrett because we've got fingerprints in the room. This is our man. They show up at his house. He's home now. Him and his mom and his siblings are watching Monday Night Football. Uh-huh. They knock on the door. The police detectives tell Garrett's mom, Charlotte, that they're there to arrest Garrett for a auto burglary or auto theft of some kind. Uh-huh. She says, okay. They take uh, Garrett into custody. And his mom said that it was weird because she knows there's about a dozen police officers of some capacity in the yard. Right. With the news media. Of course, because, I mean, this is a big time for the city and the, the county that this occurred in because of the, the district attorney and the and things he ran his platform on. Mm-hmm. And so, the magnitude of this crime. Exactly. A, a nun. A nun, yeah. Was murdered in their city, and we're eight days Nine days out. Yeah, they were and no hungry. one's been taken into custody. Yeah, they needed results. Whether you got a manufacturer or not, I don't uh, know. But they needed somebody going to jail for this. Somebody was going to go to jail for this. And and there was a, a gentleman in the documentary that said that Garrett was expendable. Wow. He was a 17-year-old poor kid who lived on the north side of Amarillo that had already been getting into trouble, whose future looked a little bleak. And for some reason, whether it was the evidence that led them there or not, because like I said, the fingerprint could get you there. Right. Well, it could get you to at least talk to him or figure out what, yeah. what he was doing in that building. As we'll find out, it doesn't take you to the end result. No. Nope. But it can get you there. Mm-hmm. And he's taken down to the police station. This is plastered all over the news. Uh, conveniently, I believe it was, this arrest was done before the 10 o'clock news. Mm-hmm. What a shot. They get up to the police station. They go in to talk to Garrett. They read him his Miranda rights. He signs his Miranda rights, says that he'll talk to police. All of this is recorded. And then all of a sudden, the recording stops. Yep. Now, I know from personal experience that I have been in situations where I was talking to people and my electronics failed. Sure. Yeah. Body mics. But those things happen all the time. It does. And so I'm not saying that that can't happen. It can. Sure. Now, but in a controlled setting, like an interview slash interrogation room, I'm going to say the chance of that are slim, but you can't rule out without all the evidence you need some type of electronic failure. Yeah. I mean, yeah, you're talking about when we're out in the field, something goes down Mm -hmm. and we can't. Are we to assume that they had one recording device? I mean, we're talking probably about the old school little flat recording stereo looking. Yeah, you, you put the tape in, mm-hmm. you hit record. Yeah, the deck, the deck, yeah, the tape deck, yeah. Put the put the tape in, hit record. 
Now, maybe the microphone on it failed, and it was not noticed until after. I'm making a lot of assumptions here, but we'll move on. There's a lot of that going on in this case, (laughs) lots of assumptions. Yes, so we'll move on. They talk to Garrett and say that he refused to make a confession, and then all of a sudden, lo and behold, they come out and say, we got it. We We got got our man. We got our confession. Also not recorded. Well, also the, the part not recorded was that there were apparently multiple police officers that came in and out of the recording mm-hmm. or in and out of the interview. And none of those guys heard it either. Just these two detectives. Right. And that was the ones uh, that those were the, the two that I told you about a second ago. Um, Morris. Yeah. And, and Jurger. Yeah. Yeah. And so they they come out and then they they type this confession up. And I read it on the, the, the first po- podcast. Uh, surprisingly, one of the about 10 seconds of that is gone. So I'd like to go through some of this where he says, on October 31st, 1980, 1981, at approximately 1.30 a.m., which would have actually made it November 1st. Uh, that's an error that, you know, it can happen. Uh, <laughs> I was drunk on whiskey and taking two hits of acid. Uh, you know, I don't, I don't know about all that, but. Uh, Garrett did have a history of abusing alcohol and and maybe taking some other things, so I can see how maybe you get there. But the part where it says, I heard some of the nuns kept nice stereos where they lived. I went over to the convent and knocked out a window on the bottom floor. I went upstairs and went into this one room. There was a nun in bed, and she acted as if she was going to scream. So I covered her mouth so she couldn't make any noise. I started choking her until she passed out, and then I had sex with her. I left the convent the same way that I came in. And in this statement, what they're saying is that the killer, who was Garrett, went in through the window and went out through the window. Mm-hmm. Later on, they'd find evidence to prove that that probably wasn't the case because there was a blood smear on an exterior door frame next to the same window. It was one of those push doors, you know, that's got the large bar across it. Mm-hmm. You push it down. So the way I was looking at it is as he's pushing the door open, the thumb's extended, and it rubs up against the frame as the person's going out. So this this confession, mm-hmm. I'm putting air quotes on that, he refused to sign it. Yes. They come back in, put the confession down. This is This is the confession right here. Right. I mean, I got this off the – yeah, I got this off the website. Uh, the last, the last word, uh, has a website for the documentary. And the, that had I mean, it's public record. These things should yeah. be accessible through the Freedom of Information Act, right? Yes. And so I, I printed this out. And if you'll notice on that police report that I showed you, mm-hmm. it is signed off by the officer. There is nothing on here. That's right. This yeah. is, this is an exact copy of the statement that they had in there. So they bring in this guy that they loosely associated to this incident. And claim that they now have a confession, none of which is recorded or that the, or that the suspect has signed. I mean, pretty bizarre. Yeah. From what my understanding of what a confession is, normally a a signature is something you're going to require, even if they're, they're not the one that pens it because a lot of times uh, they don't want to or their handwriting is poor. So they'll just. Or in this case, you know, you have, you have Garrett who is. Mentally handicapped right. in some capacity. So, so, so they he, say, hey, he we, dictates it. Yeah. We'll dictate they it. write it down. That's a common practice. Yeah. Um, but still, at the end, 
you write something to the effect of that I believe that, you know, I made this statement of my own free will and acknowledge that everything above is true, and then they would sign it. Yep. None of those things happen here. True and correct to the best of my knowledge. Right. You get your signature right there, boom, we're done. And now if, and, and in situations like this, if you go through the time to type this up and then you hand it to them and they say, I'm not signing that. You don't have a confession. You have no, from what I know from, from my training and experience, that you did not get a confession. That's correct. I mean, you, you don't even have to be in law enforcement to know that. It's anybody that's watched a couple of seasons of Law and Order would know that. <laughs> yeah. I mean, they're pretty big on that. Even in television, they're like, he didn't sign it. There's no confession. Yep. You have nothing, there's nothing to argue about. And if, we're talking about at this time. Now, if you have a full, if you have someone's Miranda rights read and then they give a full, videoed confession yeah that's different yeah, that's the different. recording would have been another brick like towards building this case but they don't even have that they got nothing yeah they have no recorded evidence they have no signed confession mm -hmm. still we're moving on yep well they well, they, they got him though yeah this is the guy now it's i i'm unsure how the attorney that showed up because in the police report that i have over here the detective actually says that he tried to call. He opened up a phone book and just started calling attorneys, and none of them answered. No one answered. No one called back. Then you got Bill Coleus that shows up. Just shows up. Shows up at the PD. Now, he could have seen it on the news, for all I know. Sure. Uh, I still find it pretty bizarre. Yeah. He shows up, tells Garrett not to make any statements, anything like this. This is after the supposed confession. Mm -hmm. So, as far as the case goes, that apparently doesn't matter now. Uh, the next day or maybe a few days later, he's at arraignment, and this is when he's in Judge Dallin's courtroom uh, for arraignment. Bill Coleus shows up yet again, and the judge, uh, Judge Dallin says, do you have an attorney? And Garrett says, I do not have an attorney. And Bill Coleus pops up in the back. Hey, I'll be his attorney. Judge Dallin's like, there's your attorney right there. I have no objections. Is that how it works? Now, from what I understand, back in the early 80s especially— it was common practice for newer attorneys or attorneys in general to kind of hang out at the courthouses. And, it, you know, now everything's kind of filed as do you, you know, when you go to arraignment now, I know for a fact, because I used to be in some of the arraignments at the jail, mm -hmm. they say, do you have an attorney? No, I do not have an attorney. And then they say, okay, we will assign you one. And then you are put into a system where someone reaches out to you and says, okay, I have been assigned to you by the, yeah. It, so this at is this just, time you, you could show up at the courthouse and be like, hey, I'll do it. Wow. And they'll say, OK, you know, like I said, 40 years ago. So, yeah, a lot of things have changed since then. But, uh, uh you know, it's almost kind of like uh, I don't want to be offensive, but, you know, kind of like lot lizards of the. Yeah. <laughs> you know, they're kind of just like, waiting around, wait yeah. for somebody to be like, oh, man, I'm on a tough time. I got a tough break coming. I need a lawyer. And he's like, did somebody say lawyer? Yeah. And generally in situations where you have a court appointed attorney, they're either newer, uh, newer attorneys or possibly attorneys that are starting new practices because there's not a whole lot of money that can be given in these cases because it comes from the county. Right. I just think when you say court appointed attorney, I didn't think it was somebody raising their hand in the back of the room. Yeah. So I got that, that kind of throws me off to think that was happening, but, but we can move on. Yeah. So, uh, Bill Coley's had never represented anybody in a murder case, much less a capital murder case. Anything. What a that, time to raise your hand. Yeah, exactly. So he gets, he gets the, he gets the job, and from what Garrett's mom, Charlotte, said, he did nothing to try to help him out 
in any capacity. Uh, she would go up and visit Garrett mm-hmm. at the jail, and he would say, how's it going? I can't get a hold of my attorney. They're not really telling me anything. They're not working on anything. Because when Garrett, when when Charlotte got up to the to the police station, she said Garrett told her that he did not commit the murder. When he got to arraignment, he pled not guilty and said, I did not do this. Mm-hmm. I did not sign anything. That is not my confession. I am innocent. I did not do this. His mom's going up and talking to him, and he's still telling her. He's like, Mom, you got to help me out. I, I didn't do this. And the interview with her is so sad because she talks about not having the resources to hire an attorney that would help her son out. And she was at the mercy of Bill Coleus, and then later on we'll find out Phil Jordan because in the in the process of a capital murder trial, it was the county's responsibility to provide him two attorneys right? because of the capital murder. Right. So Phil Jordan comes in, and what do you know, just before, a few months before, this guy was actually working for Danny Hill, the district attorney. Danny Hill, the Potter County district attorney in which this case is taking place? Whole thing, yeah. Hmm. Whole thing right there. And you got a little bit of a conflict of interest, I think, on that part. Uh, that's a definite conflict of interest. I mean, this is not just a regular case. And I hate to say that because no case should just be regular when you're talking about somebody's liberty. But this is a high-profile murder case. And the guy used to work for the DA who's taking a giant stance on crime, which is good. But there comes a lot of responsibility to the public with that. Yeah. Puts a lot of pressure on somebody to close cases rapidly. And historically, when you're doing that, uh, things are slipping through the cracks. Mm-hmm. As we're finding out with this case, lots of things start slipping through the cracks. And in general, I bet a large majority of the population of Amarillo that was following this case would not be able, you, you would not be able to make that connection unless you were on the inside of the, you know, oh, yeah. of that operation. Well, so yeah. everything looks good. You also don't know in a trial phase what attorneys are doing to prepare for trial. These yeah. are all things that we assume are just taking place and happening, and everybody is doing their best to try to figure out you know, this whole thing so that you don't assume, at least I don't most of the time, that you got two guys who are basically sitting around doing zero. Yeah, nothing. I mean, I, I'm not a lawyer. That sounds like an expensive occupation. Yes. Um. And, but they, there had to have been something they could have said or done, but nothing was getting done. They were just like, whew, man, well, I'll go ahead and defend you, but you're pretty much the guy. Yeah. So, sorry about that. And, I mean, let's dive into that because I referenced to that in the episode, and you have Charlotte who says, well, Garrett was at the house with us all night mm-hmm. playing checkers. Multiple witnesses. Multiple witnesses. I understand they're all family, but that's your starting point. Of course. You say, okay. Now, now we've got that. How do we, how do we verify that to make sure that it's true? You ask neighbors. You talk to, you know, you start talking to people. Is there anybody else that can verify this information? They brought it up in the trial, but everybody also just passed it. I'm sure the DA's office went up there and said, we can't trust these people. They're his family. And then you can automatically just wipe that off the old board as, mm-hmm. as an alibi. Yeah. Just a little squeak as they just write an X right over that person. But d- d- also, did Johnny Frank Garrett have anything like this in his past? No. 
not even close. No, you have, I think there was that, you know, one of his teachers who was, who, who came in later as a character witness, uh, Carol Moore, she, you know, she said that, that Garrett was violent and, and things of that nature. I think he had gotten to some, some fights at school. Uh, who doesn't? Which who didn't. Yeah. And I mean, that fighting is a part of, I, I'm pretty sure every, every kid's childhood. Yeah. He had some low-level petty crimes. Yeah, petty crimes. But nothing that would seem like you would get to the jump of not just murder and not just rape. Brutal. Yeah. We're, we're talking something from someone who had a lot of rage. Exactly. This seems like a pretty obvious time for somebody to be like, he's got no history of this and there's no cause to make the, to push him towards it. Why did this happen? And nobody's asking those questions. Everybody's just like, this is the dude. Yeah. And we can, we can even say the, going back to the, uh, Alicia Bromfield, do we have a circumstance where, like we talked about, where you have someone who seemingly never committed a crime like that to, well, maybe he kidnapped his girlfriend to now he's committed murder, but you have all of those things in that case connected together it's kind of sewn up with him and the obsession and all that we just have a kid who lives across the street who's maybe vandalized somebody's property or car and then all of a sudden he's committed this heinous this heinous crime yeah absolutely heinous and just another just another way that these defense attorneys just utterly failed um this man and then when you take into effect that you have the bishop of the church openly talk about with anybody, he's like, hey, yeah, yeah. I was, he, he comes over. I was waiting for this part to come up because he tells the police that he does come over and he helps, you know, he hangs out in the sanctuary, if that's what it's called. Yeah. And uh, he helps move stuff around, gives the people at the church a hand. So right there you have an affirmative link to why there's a non violent way his fingerprints got into the church again this went completely like uh, unnoticed by his defense attorneys and this isn't just uh some person off the street this isn't just his family saying that he was at home playing checkers this is the bishop yes that carries a lot of weight not only in his occupation but also in the community mm-hmm. and it went completely unheard yeah no. and one. if they did hear it they didn't respond they're no. just like oh all right yeah, that I mean, so like you said, that gets you to the point where it would be reasonable to think that Garrett was in her room when you have the bishop of the church saying, I know for a fact that he helped move furniture in and out of that exact room. Exactly. And then you got the, you have the butter knife. The butter knife is in her room. It is very weird to me. I understand this to have the butter knife with his fingerprint on it and go, how is there not a link between that? But the butter knife was ruled out as the murder weapon, and it had no biological evidence on it whatsoever. Right, and it was bent, and it was bent. And so, my thought process while I was trying to figure out how this how how this ties into this, and this could be totally out in left field, but as a kid who was living in a kind of rougher part of town, mm-hmm. who wandered at night a lot and didn't really have the mental capacity of say the average person. I was tr- I was trying to think to myself that perhaps this these knives, especially the one they found out in the on the church, they found one on the church property mm-hmm. that was a steak knife that they matched back to his house. Right, two different knives, 
both of them ruled out as the murder weapons, both of them lacking biological evidence. Yeah, which there would most certainly be some type of biological evidence. 100%. Even knives. if you wipe these knives off, right. it's, they're going to be able to find something. Yeah, at the cellular level, these things, you're having these things soak in under the handles, into the rivets. Mm-hmm. There's no way to perfectly clean one. Now, what if Garrett is, while he's wandering at night because he doesn't want to be at home, where he's been in these terrible, abusive situations, when I found out that Garrett had been basically pimped out by some of his stepfathers... I, I mean, yeah, his upbringing was just terrible, terrible. And then this happens to him. But what if he's carrying around these knives as a way of sort of protection in his in his mind? You know, like he leaves the house, he grabs a knife. That seems pretty reasonable because I can't think of most people I know carry a knife. Yep. And if you have someone in a lower income area, maybe they can't afford certain things that they have. But he does have these uh, at least at his disposal. They, right. he, he can grab them and Exactly. And it, and it, apparently it was very uh there was situations where the poli- where the police talked about seeing Garrett like seeing him in his front yard. Uh you had a security guard uh, apparently that was familiar with Garrett. So as he's walking around and if the police presence is higher in that area, which it very well could have been, maybe he ditches, you know, he doesn't want to be caught with the knife maybe he's scared about the knife or whatever and so he ditches one of them you know on the ground yeah we can't really say for sure i'm speculating about that of course yeah that's speculation but i mean also i thought about they found a bent butter knife with his fingerprints on it he's moving furniture around well i know there are several times as a kid that i can clearly recall uh there's a screw that's loose i we didn't have any tools growing up we didn't have much growing up in my household so what do you think we used to Tighten up screws. Mm-hmm. A butter knife. Maybe he used it as a tool and it got bent and he just left it. Again, speculation, but I mean, that would be a re- He's moving things. Mm-hmm. I think a tool would be something you would use for, you know, whatever it was needed for. I'm just saying we can talk about that and all the various ways it could have ended up there. But in the end, the most important thing about these this fingerprint on this butter knife is that there's no biological evidence in addition to this fingerprint. Yeah, it was ruled out as a possible murder weapon both of them and so you you can't get to the murder in my opinion using these two items that were clearly not murder weapons right they go to trial and unfortunately this is another part that was i lost a little bit of a little bit of time in there but the da's office basically says we've got the confession we've got the fingerprints in the room we got them on a knife i don't think they said that Obviously, that this knife was not used in the murder, and if if that was a point that was brought up, his attorney should have objected. And Absolutely, said, hey, uh, you can't use that. But it's not that's not even the knife that was used. The FBI already said. No one says anything. Again, yeah. Ugh. You have Garrett's family who comes up and says that they were at home with him. That's all dismissed. Obviously, uh, you have the jailhouse snitch that comes in and. Conveniently, a few weeks before the trial starts, he's moved into the same area. Um, I I knew them as calling them pods, you know, where the the general population of people are are put. Mm -hmm. Uh, And all of a sudden, this guy comes on the stand who, which I also have a problem with. 
Yeah, because they're not very reliable. Oh, is I, this is this the Lonnie Watson? Yeah, this is Lonnie Watson, and I don't understand how you can have someone who's who's been used in multiple. You know, it, I, I think, and a lot of people, if you see cases now, they'll say, "Have you ever uh, have you ever worked with the district attorney's office? You know, in any capacity before this?" And the majority of them, you'll see, say yes. And so I can't understand how we get in these scenarios where, luckily, this same guy keeps getting put in front of the right people and just has this personality where people just love to talk to him and tell him stories specifically about violent crimes that they committed. Seems a little sketchy to me. Uh, it does seem sketchy. And, and, and a lot of times, uh, you'd know this better than I, but these jailhouse snitches, they're, they're offered something in return for their information. Not up front. Not up front. Not up front. Can't do it up front. Right. Cause it's got to pan out. Got to pan out. So a lot of times they'll say on the stand, were you offered anything? Oh, okay. and they say, no, okay. I was not offered anything. And they say the DA's office did not promise to do anything for you, anything like that. And they say, no. And in most cases, that is true. They will not offer them anything up front. However, say four months later, they get probation for something or they get mm -hmm. a, a reduced sentence or they get some, you know, there's usually some sort of correlation between the two events but with nothing promised up front. Right. So you still more, have the same outcome. Yeah. As if they said, did they promise you anything? They promised me a reduced sentence. That does not sound good. No, it don't. In court. Yeah. So they, they, did they offer you anything? No, they have not. So what did this Lonnie Watson have to say? So he, apparently he said that Garrett confessed to him that he, ki that he was the one who actually killed the nun. From what I understand, there was not a whole lot of information that was given because in the confession itself, there is no information given. Yeah, it's so it's so basic and bland. Yeah, and we also have to assume that because news media was picking this up and running with it on every single front page story, on every single 6 and 10 o'clock news section, something was written about this. So I would assume that Lonnie Watson had the same information as everybody else did. Or he was fed information that, that ended – I don't want to speculate that he was fed information. But he had the same information that probably everybody else did. Well, I mean – And if, he used that. If all you're saying is that I heard this guy killed this person, he told me, you heard you could have heard that anywhere. Yeah. And if I'm a juror and hopefully somebody out there, if you if you hear that, I'd go ahead and just – Yeah. I'd wipe that you one take off. take that with yeah. a grain of salt, as yeah. they say. But also, I'd question how much time they even spent around each other. Where yeah. I'm – this 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 guy is implying that the time that he how much time I don't know it could have been weeks it could have been months it could have been a couple days it could have been a couple hours for all I know he just says yeah I got to know this guy and weirdly enough uh, like all these other people he just told he just admitted to his crime to me mm -hmm. just sharing a, you know sharing a glass of toilet wine and he was like you know what I did do it yeah and apparently don't tell anyone yeah don't tell anybody yeah. But just, uh, I made it in the toilet. Mm -hmm. Just sharing some wine that's made in the toilet. Yeah. Anyway, so he says that Garrett later comes back and says, like, he doesn't even know this guy. Exactly. He does, he, it, that if, uh, he knows of him. Of course. But he doesn't really know him. And that apparently they're, they're uh, housed across the pod from each other or in a different location. And in order for him to have given this information to them, because I know in some areas of the jail you have single cell in some, you have open day rooms with bunk beds. I don't know specifically how this was back in the 80s in mm -hmm. Potter County. 
from what he said, he would have had to have shouted it across the day room. So I'm assuming they were in individual cells and everybody in the whole entire area presumably could have heard what he said. It would have been easier to say, come in with 10 guys. Wow. But somehow they only have this one guy that says that he, that he did all this. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of, uh, a lot of issues with the jury. There was a lot of issues with the fact that there wasn't a change of venue. I mean, how can you say when every jury member that was brought in for the Vordire process said they knew about the case? I, yeah. Do you, have you heard about it? Sure have. Every single person. I mean, what else was there to watch? Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. That to me is a, you can't have a, a better example of why you need a change of venue. Absolutely. Than that right there. Mm-hmm. But from what a completely biased community. Yeah. And from what I understand that because of the publicity that was on this case, nobody from the judges down wanted it to move because they were getting some serious quote unquote reelection points and they didn't want to move it. Also, the news media didn't want it to move out of town because they were going to have to either pay to send people down there to cover the story or they were going to have to pay to get you know, maybe a feed or however that worked from a news, a news station, say in down South Texas or somewhere that mm-hmm. wherever they would have moved the case to, they would have had to pay to get a feed to come back into the Emerald area so that they, so it was cheaper for everybody basically to assume that, or it's cheaper for everyone to keep the trial here. Right. And it looks better for everyone. Um, you had a guy on the jury that said that he was friends with police detectives or police officers. You had one guy on the jury that was the nephew to a judge who was going to to testify during the sentencing part of the trial. Yeah. If there was a guilty verdict found, which it was. It seems like, because like I said, uh, Nathan Shackelford and Judge Shackelford were related to each other, Judge uh, Jerry Shackelford. And I guess from what I'm trying to put together, Judge Shackelford probably dealt with Garrett in a different you know, in those crimes that he may have committed, okay. you know, before then. So then you get, so you have those, you have that conflict of interest there amongst everything else. And somehow the trial moves on. Mm-hmm. Everything happened that happened. Guilty, uh, Garrett's found guilty. And it's said in the documentary that when he's found guilty, he stands up and says, I'm innocent. I mean, you've got a lot of different things going on here that, that seem not right. And one of the things that I wanted to bring up in this episode is during his appeals process, there was a judge, uh, I mean, a, an attorney, uh, Bruce Sadler. This is also an area that got cut out, but he was assigned to work with Garrett on his appeals process. Uh, it was said by the family that he did little to help him. And then all of a sudden, in the middle of his appeals process, while he's working with this attorney, he quits and goes and works for Danny Hill at the DA's office. Wow. So it seems like... We're going to toss that into the egg basket for conflict of interest. Yeah. Of course, that, of course, again, I'm not a lawyer. I'm not sure how this works, but this all sounds incredibly shady to me. Yeah. And I think we were kind of... When we were talking about this earlier, we were talking about kind of the buddy ball. Oh, absolutely. When you're talking about like a county court... Defense and prosecuting attorneys, these judges, the clerks, all these people, they, these are, this is their day job. They're hanging out with these people all the time. So you could be the prosecuting, the guy, uh, that's being defended by your buddy and you just be out of golf with him 
and just yeah. assume they're not talking about things right now. They're not sharing details. I mean, yeah, that's speculation. Sure, I totally get that. It's safe to assume that all of the every lawyer is just incredibly competent and professional. But to me, that just sounds so bizarre. Mm-hmm. How can you ethically go in to defend somebody when you're just out cracking cold ones with the guy who's trying to put your uh client in prison or in this case to death yeah and the way all these people know each other it's just this is not a large metroplex this is a small community of of, of lawyers at the time and probably hasn't grown much since then and they're all just hanging out together yeah and like like I said, we, we're obviously we're not attorneys, and we don't know the the dynamics of that whole situation. But it does seem a little strange when you know when you have one one attorney trying to put someone to death, and then the other one is his good buddy. Yeah, and again, really, what I'm really focusing on is that none of these defense attorneys do a thing to stop this from happening. No, nope. not a single decent appeal. Not a single objection in court that I, that I saw. No. They're just, this guy gets completely railroaded and everyone's like, okay. Well, you know, things happen. Things happen. He did it. It's the guy. It's the guy, yeah. guys. I saw, interestingly, I saw a poll that was taken for the Amarillo newspaper. It was called something different back then than it is now. So I'm not going to say the name, but for the Amarillo newspaper and 92% of people in Amarillo believe that Garrett was guilty and deserved to be executed. Wow. And that's why that's why we want to talk about stuff like this because that is a overwhelming majority of yeah. the people in Amarillo that were polled. I think it was a little over 3,000 people that were polled. 92% said he's guilty, give him the needle. Based off the information that they got from the media and I guess rumors around town. This was the guy without having any reference back to the fact that there was already another guy that they were looking about that somehow just got swept under the rug. Yeah. I mean, there's no, there's no actual evidence. So what were they saying on the news and in these papers? I guarantee you they were probably running that they had the confession. Exactly. But uh, it's just really unfortunate. It it costs a man his life. And to me, that's just wild. Yeah. And then it, and then it comes out. Go ahead. But, I mean, th- this is – the syst- the court system is built. The careers that people have in court systems are built on convictions yes. and getting results. And so something this high profile to happen – And high rates of conviction. Oh, yeah. So that's a huge thing. You, you have to have it. That's why you hear about plea deals all the time. Now, I'm not going to hang on this too much longer, but this was an obvious injustice – and uh, we're not quite done with it yet. I'm just still, this was such a terrible thing to happen. And nobody said a thing about it. it everybody just watched it happen and believed it 100%, 92%. Let's yeah. say 92%. They believed it 92%. And there wasn't a lick of actual evidence to say that this was their guy. They just made, they talked about it so much. They had everybody believe in that. Yeah, and they said this. That's there da- was no other. That's way a dangerous it could be. thing. Very it's dangerous. Very dangerous. You should always question. I mean, the 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 way the laws are written, or they're written for a reason. So you have to prove that somebody did something. And in this case, they didn't at all. And look what happened. Yeah, and then especially whenever you you find out that 
later on, they're like, okay, there were somebody else's fingerprints found in the room that didn't belong to Garrett, uh, Sister Ben's, or anybody else in the church. And that seems like a good lead to follow. Yeah. There were shoe prints found outside of the, the church from that night mm-hmm. that did not match Garrett. None of the biological evidence was found on his clothes. No glass. No, you know, no nothing. There was also talk about there being dog hairs all over Garrett's clothes because apparently they had a dog in the house. No transfer of dog hairs at, yeah. at the crime scene. And then all of the other similarities that matched up to the other murder, uh, Narnie Box Bryson. Mm-hmm. Now, what's interesting about that is the white shirts because they found them crumpled up at the at both the murder scenes. Now, I don't know why the, the person left those behind, but they were at both of them. Now, why that's going to be important is is I'll I'll talk to you I'll talk about it in a minute. But in those communities where you have, uh, or in this community where we have that refugee population, these churches and other uh, nonprofit organizations help them out. They give them clothes, they give them food, they get you know they help them find right, jobs, get them on their feet. So one of the things that they give out almost like you can buy off the commissary in jail is they'll give out white t-shirts as kind of a not, you know, it's not a, a branded shirt. Not yeah. a, it's, it's solid color clothes yeah, just that a they give out. Basic just, white just t-shirt. A t-shirt. Yeah. So you could also, you could almost make the link between, you know, those two, uh, those two situations. And then you get to where, you know, okay, Garrett's executed. We don't have to talk about the appeals process any further and that, you know, the the bishop tried to get Pope John Paul II to intervene in this whole thing. I mean, and when I heard that, I was like, that's going top level. That's pretty serious. Yeah. We're, yeah. we're at the top where the pope is calling the governor of Texas and saying, I think we got a problem. And it was also swept under the rug. But then in 2004, there was a, a detective at APD who sent in all the DNA evidence from the Nani Box, Nani Box Bryson murder to get all the, the evidence tested. Mm-hmm. There was a hit on the DNA evidence. It came back to Leoncio Perez Rueda. He was the second guy that they, right, they couldn't yeah, find Right, yeah, one of the original two suspects. Yeah, they have a hit on his DNA from that crime scene. Now, he was serving a sentence in New Mexico, I believe, for some other sort of violent crime. I think you're right, yeah. They bring him back to Potter County in 2004. We're 13 years, 12, 13 years past the, I'm I'm sorry, we're 22 years, 23 years past the original murder. Mm -hmm. Uh, What I was going to say is Garrett's been gone for 10, 10, 12 years. He's been executed. They bring him back in. He gives a news or he gives an interview with someone and says, Hey, do you have any information about these cases? And he's like, No, but I did have a friend. And he starts talking about Fernando Flores. Mm-hmm. And he admitted to, uh, you know, doing some stuff like this. I think he is the one that, that killed this lady talking about Bryson. Mm-hmm. And he also told me that at some point he had sexually assaulted a nun. And the person interviewed was like, did he kill her? And he's like, I don't know. He really didn't say, I would assume that he did. I assume that he killed her. I assume that he raped her. Um, but I don't know. But that, but, but that was definitely Flores. That was him. What a casual conversation. Yep. And then they, the police come in and t- to talk to him and they say, Oh, hey, by the way, we've matched a DNA profile on you, not on Flores, mm-hmm. on you. 
And he says, okay, it was me. Yep, got me. And the DA's office at the time offers him a plea deal. They say, you accept this, plead guilty to this, you get 40 years in prison with the possibility of parole, and we will not, and you will not be charged with any other crimes that could be related to this incident. What other crime could be related to this? That's crazy, but I would assume that just wild guess here. Mm-hmm. Maybe it involved a nun. Weird, but but don't worry. Don't worry. He doesn't have to worry about that. He does not because he made a deal that said that he cannot be charged, and they won't test the evidence against it. The the evidence for the sister Ben's murder. From last I heard 10 years ago, when they, when they checked, was still available. It's The evidence is still in evidence locker. That's somewhere. a very specific bullet on this plea deal yeah. to me. When You're I read right. that, I was like, hold up. That sounds very specific. Yeah. Uh, could there be a reason for that? <laughs> Just stay tuned. We'll talk about that. Yeah. <laughs> and, and what's – yeah, you're right because – most of the time, they say if you when you get a plea deal, they they give you the information, but they, there's usually not a additional bullet point that says we will not you will you will not be charged with any other cases mm-hmm. related, and we will not test it against this other case. I mean, <laughs> yeah. the one the, the case we're not going to mention. Yes, yeah, exactly is what it sounds like to me. And so, I mean, good good that they caught another good that they caught a murderer. Yeah, uh, and a rapist because. That's disgusting, and he was just taking advantage of somebody uh, in the worst ways. Still, it ended, this case ended up killing a man that just got picked to be the guy. Mm -hmm. And that's what it feels like to me. Um, Because you could actually say, if you look at Garrett, he has no crimes that were related to such... Yeah, no pattern of behavior. No pattern of behavior. For violence at all, almost. Leoncio Rueda was later found out that he was already a convicted murderer and rapist from Cuba. Holy smokes. And if you tie all of that, all of those things together, I think you can easily get to, yeah, that was probably the guy. You could definitely build a better case to that than Johnny Frank Garrett. Yeah. Uh, But he just got completely railroaded. They're like, this is the guy. There was no evidence, hardly a link. Hardly even an affirmative link because the one that they did have, the fingerprint, again, the bishop's like, no, I, I could explain that. He held more furniture. He did that from time to time. And they're like, yeah, but we got a knife. And they're like, the FBI says it was not the murder weapon. That seems like that pretty much closes that up. Yeah. And what 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 I'm really took away from this is this is just a fundamental failure from the ground up. Yeah. And this isn't just this isn't just in the county, the city of Amarillo. This is all the way up to the state level. Yeah, because this has multiple appeals, especially when you're going for something like the death penalty. Mm-hmm. Uh, and all these different people had to look at this guaranteed case. guaranteed avenues. Yes, this is built into Texas law. Other people, many other people, had to look at this case in its entirety and decide, okay, it's legit, or not look at it. Or, or not. Yeah. And it went all the way to the top, and everybody was like, just giving the nod. Yep, good. Yep, good. Yep, yep, good. And they put this man to death for something that, I mean, that he could not, that he just didn't do. I just, I personally do not believe he did this. He doesn't even look good for it, uh, even with a cursory glance of the evidence. No. I mean, have stranger cases happen? 
Sure. So before anybody comes at me like, uh, people have committed murder for less, uh, with less evidence and, uh, never got caught or did get caught. I'm just saying. Yeah. This one, no. I just don't believe it. If, if, if we wouldn't have been able to look back and make the link between Rueda and the Bryson, Nani Box, Box Bryson murder, mm-hmm. and then maybe you could, in my opinion, there could be some doubt whether you're on the fence, but after his DNA was linked to that crime, and then these crimes were the exact same thing yeah. with the exact same crime and the almost exact same evidence that the crimes themselves, as far as the strangulation and the rape and the mutilation mm-hmm. and the elderly aspect right. to, of it, I I can't get... No. It's hard to get me to go into maybe another category or maybe into another camp there. No, I, I wouldn't. I'm definitely not seeing it how this how this happened. I, but it did. And that's really unfortunate. Everybody just wanted results. And this, in my opinion, is a case of the DA's office just being like, this is too high profile. I need results. Someone's going to go down for this. And they just picked basically, without sounding too crass, the goofy kid across the street. Yeah. I mean, this is terrible. Yeah. And no, and nobody stopped it. Uh, and that to me is even, is just as bad. It's, I believe, that's why I said, and I believe in truth and justice. Absolutely. I believe in the justice system. I believe that the uh, police are necessary. I believe in the justice system as a whole. But this type of thing makes you cast doubt in people's oh. mind. Oh, for sure. Does and if it you try doubt? to cover stuff up like this, it only makes the doubt worse. Mm-hmm. And so that's why I said I wasn't trying to crap on anybody's profession or do anything like that. No. But you, you have to have conversations like that because this is how situations in the future are avoided, hopefully. Hopefully, this is how situations are avoided. That's true. We, we, we would hope that they would learn from something like this, but. Well, and I know I can speak personally from the department that I worked at that I never saw anything even remotely close to something like this go on. With, Thank God. Yeah. And I know, and like I said, you actually work for Amarillo Police Department. So. Yeah. And I, I don't think that things like this happen, especially with this many holes in the case because everybody's got there's so much more oversight and, and to avoid things like this, probably by design, I would imagine. Yeah. And so when you're not doing your due diligence as a detective, you get, that brings a lot of attention to you. Absolutely. It's not something you can slip by the cracks here. Do I still think there's a lot of wheeling and dealing down at the boys club at the courthouse, so to speak? Uh, yes, of course. Conviction rates need convictions. I need, they need them. That's how they keep their funding up or, or however it works. I don't actually know, <laughs> but to me, it's always seems a little weird, but you would hope that these things don't keep happening and yeah. I hope they don't, but you just don't know. Absolutely. And I think we can kind of walk into the last part of, of this case as far as everything else goes, because we've been talking about it for a while. And, and like I said, this could have easily been a, Two or three, four. Oh, yeah. I mean, there is a ton of stuff. I I would encourage you guys to go visit that website, that Last Word documentary. They've got all the pictures of the evidence on there. They've got a ton, I mean, a ton of information on there. 
Um, but the, the, the interesting thing about it is at the execution of Garrett, he, it states on the TDCJ website that he refused to give a statement. But from what witnesses say, he basically went through this, uh, kind of, I'm coming after you. I'm coming after your family. I'm coming. I mean, he was saying, I'm going to, I'll be waiting for every single person basically in your entire lineage that this miscarriage of justice that was brought on him. He said that he was going to go back in the, in the spiritual sense mm-hmm. and get his revenge. I mean, what else could he do at this point that society had failed him? His city, county, state failed him. He is now seconds away from being put to death. And so he does the last thing he can do. He's going to, he's going to talk a little and yeah. he's going to say, I'm going to be, whenever you come to the other side, I'm going to be the first guy you see. I think yeah. is something. Close I will, to- yes. When you die and you come to the other, I will be there waiting for you. And he basically throws out this curse that he's, he's coming for all these people, um, which, after his death, which I said could be, you know, theatrics. It's laughable. Yeah, I but, do think it's very interesting that TDCJ claims he said nothing. Yes, I do too. But then uh, witnesses are like, no, he had some things to say. Yeah. So, again, another one of those very strange circumstances in this case. But let's move forward. Yeah. But like I say, it it could have been laughable. And there was like, you walk, I mean, I imagine people walk down there and they're like, oh, yeah, this guy's going to meet us on our death. Everybody's laughing and slapping each other on the back and they go get a pizza and a beer. But wait. That's right. People started to die. And I understand death in general is something that comes for us all. Mm -hmm. It's the most assured thing to happen to you in your life. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. But it was just strange that in a short period of time. That's right. After Garrett was executed, we had like a dozen people that were closely associated with the case that died. Uh, One of the people that didn't get a whole lot of mention in this one, which was Ralph Erdman, uh, he, he was kind of the first one that they talked about. He was the medical examiner. And I think, honestly, it, if you look into to Ralph Erdman himself, you that's a whole episode. I'm, I'm serious. We could do a whole episode later on down the line somewhere if we wanted to just about Ralph Erdman. Really? Because of all of the scandal that was tied up with this guy. And then later, I'm pretty sure people were like, I, we don't even know if he was a real the 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 way that Ralph Erdman's story reads to me is a catch me if you can type scenario. No way. You know, yeah, where uh, Frank Abagnale, mm-hmm. played by uh, Leo, Leo, was <laughs> was acting like a medical doctor. Yeah, this sort of seems wow a little bit like you know that he had maybe some uh, questionable credentials. Oh and my goodness! He just. Failure after failure after failure follows this guy around. Mm, it's abs- it's it's crazy. I I felt like there was so much stuff going on there. I didn't even chase that one down the rabbit hole because no. we could. I'm serious. There's plenty of you rabbit could, holes in this case alone. You could do a whole episode just on Erdman. Mm-hmm. And and then also a oh I want to point out in the other in the last episode I did make a mistake when I said that when Bruce Sadler died. Uh, attorney, attorney Bruce Sadler, he was, uh, one, he was one of the people that testified against Garrett in the, he was, he was one of the witnesses in what I said was he was one of the witnesses in the sentencing trial, but he, uh, and I have his name written right next to Jerry Shackelford's name, who was the judge that actually did that. And, uh, 
Judge Sadler was actually the one that signed off on Garrett's death warrant. And so I, I made a, I mixed those up. But if you can see me in my, when, when Mike and I sit down to record these, you know, we're sitting at my, my uh, table in the dining room. We don't have like a fancy studio or producers or writers or any of this stuff. When I record the episode by myself, I'm literally crammed back in my laundry room. Yeah. Like where I get the, the, you know, where it's the quietest because everything that's going on around me. And on this case right here, I've got, have you ever seen the meme of, I think, is it Charlie from It's Always Sunny? That's right. And he's got the yarn at the string and all this mm-hmm. stuff. He's got and a I string got, board up. He's got a string board up. And I got all this stuff everywhere. And I'm, I'm trying to record this deal. And I'm looking around trying to figure out where all my stuff's at. And I just have this very limited space to do mm-hmm. it in. And so there were some errors. But anyways, th- this. That's going to happen, man. Yeah. This, all of these people. I mean, you had cancers. Uh, one lady was run over. One lady fell down some stairs. Uh, one died of an accidental gunshot wound. All right, and it's it's a it's a dozen. Yeah, I mean at least if let's look at it like this: how many people were related to this case? Let's say a hundred. That's ten percent. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean that's a lot of people just with uh who had who were all related to this case that died, and and that's though even though. It, they claim that he didn't have a final statement. Witnesses say that he threw out that like that curse there at the end, where he's like, "I'm coming for you uh, and your families," and then all these people start dying. It's like the rumor. It's like all the people that died um, around the, making the movie The Exorcist. Uh, that's a lot of people. Yeah, but, and it's. I mean, we're talking about either directly related mm-hmm. or basically kind of one spot removed from the person who was hey. related. We're not going to to Jimmy's fourth cousin mm-hmm. down in Mississippi no. that did it, you know. Local folks. No, we're talking about people yeah. directly related and, to and, the case or their immediate family members. And, and you're far more of a skeptic than I am when it comes to things like the supernatural, but I'm a believer in in things beyond the prime material plane that we here live on. And so I'd say there's a lot to talk about there. That's yeah. something very interesting. We can't say for certain things like that don't happen. So it definitely got me thinking. It, it certainly would. Twelve people related to the case in one way or another die recently. Um, like right. not, and we're not talking about. Yeah, not like right after. Yeah, we're not talking about thirty years later than you had this. Uh, we're talking about a short timeline. Yeah. I'm not able to. I wasn't able to find the yeah. exact timeline, but we're talking about pretty close. Yeah, definitely. Definitely will get you thinking. Yeah, I mean, we could talk about this case all night. Yeah. And it's just so shoddy. Yeah, it is so shoddy. And so I think for 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 uh, for the purposes of this episode, like I said, we don't – I don't know if we really had the following at the time to go into a six-parter or something like no. that. So, you know, I wanted no. to keep it. That's this, a big commitment. <laughs> yeah, this, this one's r- ran a little bit longer. Um, but we want to thank you guys for listening and, uh, I think we're going to leave it there for right now. Mm-hmm. Before we go, I want to talk about really quick is we have had, uh, we are, we're so thankful for everybody that has listened to the podcast, downloaded the podcast. Oh, yeah. Thank um, you so much. Yeah. We, let's, I, I couldn't believe, you know, how many people, uh, initially that started, you know, downloading and listening. And so I thought one of the really cool things was that we could see, all yeah. of the areas where everybody is- was downloading the the podcast, and so we just wanted to, you know, we just wanted to give a couple shout outs real quick because 
the top 10 locations that the podcast has been downloaded so far. Uh, number one is, da- is Amarillo, mm-hmm. um, obviously. Yeah. Thank you yep. for the support. Hometown. Yep. And we'll do top 10. Now, up until yesterday, it was Lubbock, but coming in at second place, we got Dallas, Texas. Uh, then we have Lubbock. We have Lake Stevens, Washington. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know where that's at, but I'm that's, sure you That's do. where I'm from. Yeah, I'm from the Pacific Northwest. Yeah. Uh, Big Spring, uh, right after that. Big Spring, Texas. San Antonio, Texas. Uh, I don't... This was kind of a shock to me. Columbus, Ohio, and... Is that Hogue? Or Hoff? Hoff, Ohio? Too. Sorry if we messed that up. Mm-hmm. And... And we got a couple of ties for 10th place, but I think uh, this one's more specific to you right here, right? Yep. LeGrand, Oregon. Yeah. What's up? Yeah. Go ahead and give a shout out to yeah. them. Yeah. Thank you to everybody. Now, the most interesting part, there is someone in Clitchy, I believe is the way you, you say it, if I, if I mess that up. It's outside, it's a suburb outside of Paris, France. Whoa. And so we have a listener in Paris, France. I'm not sure who it is. Yeah. Right outside of Paris, France. Downloaded every single episode. Every single episode. So far. And yeah. so if you live in these areas that we talked about, especially the person that lives in France, reach out to us. Uh, contact at themurderproject.com. That's our email address. And just tell us how you heard about the project, uh, how you heard about the podcast, uh, and who you are. And maybe we can read some of those off if you want to. I think that would kind of be like a, of a oh, fun deal. It's so cool. As far as it's super cool. Yeah, and uh, so Lubbock, you got to pump those numbers because you got knocked out of second place yesterday. <laughs> yeah, Lubbock, get it yeah, together. Get it together. And anybody else that's listening, let your friends know. We appreciate it so much. Yeah, this is the early, we're in the early stages. We're super fresh. Yep, so but, we can do a lot of fun stuff. Yeah, and but we, we got to get the word out. Yep. Like, share, subscribe, review. I don't know, be nice about it. That'd be great. Yeah, uh, if you but want to any criticism is good. Yeah, five star. That sounds you know pretty reasonable to me. Yeah. Um, but this isn't gonna work uh, if we don't get it out there. So any help you could give us by clicking those likes and subscribes and spreading the word, we'd love it. I yeah. sure appreciate it. We'd appreciate it so much. And that is gonna do it for us on this episode. Hopefully next time we can we can uh, update the list for uh, viewers and and what the top 10 is i think that'd be a fun kind of thing that is kind of neat little, yeah little it's cool competition going make sure and let your friends know so that y'all can pump them numbers uh we appreciate it so much we'll see you guys next time goodbye mm-hmm. thank you guys so much for tuning into the show we really appreciate it if you guys want to check us out on any of the social media platforms we are on facebook at the murder project or you can click facebook.com slash podcast tmp If you prefer Instagram, we are at The Murder Project. And if you are looking for us on Twitter, we'll be at The Murder Pod. Also, don't forget to go to whatever platform you're listening on and hit the subscribe button, the like button, whatever the the button is that is associated with that platform. Uh, Leave a comment, leave a review, hit that five star if you so choose. Five stars. And let us know that, uh, you know, let us know how we're doing. Uh, We'd really appreciate it. It helps us get our name out. I can't explain how this process helps new podcasters in the beginning because in order for us to beat the algorithm, we have to get those numbers up. We have to get the reviews up. We have to get all of those things up. So if you wouldn't be so kind, if you're listening to it right now, you got your iPhone with you or your smart device, click on there. It only takes a few seconds, and we'd appreciate it so much. But that's going to do it for us on this episode of The Murder Project. We hope to speak with you soon, but until then, 
head up, eyes up, and stay alive.